welcome to episode 35 of the Telling the Story podcast. This is the audio branch of the Telling the Story blog at tellingthestoryblog.com, a look at how journalists and everyone reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and reporter at NBC in Atlanta. Today's episode tackles a very difficult topic. Now, my guest is someone with a career spanning decades in television, covering news and sports in Atlanta and nationwide, and I hope later in this interview we can talk a little about that, but I wanted to have him on the podcast because this past week he witnessed an execution. He was one of five journalists named to witness the death of Kelly Gissendanner, a Georgia woman who had been on death row for nearly two decades after plotting the murder of her husband. Her sentence and her death have been very controversial topics here in Atlanta. And I think it's really important for journalists to use their respective platforms to be stewards of access. We can go places others cannot. In this case specifically, most people and most journalists really cannot go to this place. My guest tonight did. He is my co-worker at WXIA-TV in Atlanta, Jeff Hollinger. Welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for asking that I be a part of it. Jeff, the, uh, the execution happened late Tuesday. You did such a marvelous job in the hours that followed of tweeting and writing about it with compassion and perspective. You didn't shy away from the details, and yet you really seemed to go to great lengths to translate your experience, not just the what of what happened, but the surrounding context and everything that went along with it. Before we get into everything and and how you feel uh, about your role as a journalist here, let me start by asking this. It's two days later when we're recording this. How are you doing? I've processed it, uh, and I'm I'm doing better than I was initially. I think in the hours after witnessing this horrific event, uh, I was struggling, and I did not sleep for a while, and I found myself, uh, you know, thinking and thinking (laughs) and thinking, and I feel a lot better a couple of days after the fact, and uh, I, 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 I think I have processed it pretty well. Now, obviously, this is a very gruesome topic to say the least i i am giving you complete leeway to say as much or as little as you want about what you saw uh before we get into the day itself i want to just kind of back up to before this all happened before you even realized you could potentially be a witness for this what were your thoughts about journalists witnessing executions what were your thoughts about it personally did you have any desire or interest in conveying that sort of thing. I had no desire to witness this. I, I didn't feel like I had anything to offer. Um, I'm somewhat sensitive. <laughs> I am a father and a husband, and you know I don't feel like I bring any great perspective to this. And it was my desire to, to kind of stay out of it. I know when the state was preparing to execute her in March, I field anchored our coverage from Jackson, Georgia, and was there for about six or seven hours as a reporter. Um, there were those individuals who went in there to witness this execution that did not come to pass. Uh, but at no time did I ever look at those individuals who came out in a van and say, man, I wish I were in there. I, I didn't want to be in there because I, I didn't feel like I needed to be. And you've obviously been in this business long enough where you've, uh, you've covered many executions. You've gotten to know journalists who have been in there. What was something that you had learned from talking with others who had gone through this that 
prepared you in some way for what you wound up seeing? I, I was trying to prepare myself intellectually to do this and, and not sure what I was going to see. And, and also um, spiritually a little bit to understand that this is the law and I am there as a steward of my employer and of the public interest. And I felt that uh, many of these, these executions by lethal injection have been as clinical and as procedural as a colonoscopy, for uh, lack of a better way to describe it. And I was not going to go in there and see a, a guillotining or a hanging or uh, sitting in the chair infamous, infamously known in the state as Old Sparky. So uh, I didn't believe that I was going to see something that would be um, uh, something that I would not be able to forget. I was wrong. So as so you get your assignment, you're on the list of five people, you agree to do it. Was that ever a question in your mind? Um, I, I didn't want to do it. But I saw in an email that had been sent to our newsroom and to all of the eyeballs who collect a paycheck in journalism in this terrific television station, my name on it. And I think uh, sitting in an anchor chair, I have a responsibility to represent this television station publicly. And I take that very seriously. I think uh, if you sit in an anchor chair, whether it's sports or news, you have a responsibility not only to the public, but also to your coworkers. I think you need to lead not just by criticizing writing or saying that you didn't like a story or you were uncomfortable with the weather segment or whatever. I think word in action becomes significant, particularly um, in, a, in a local television station. And it might be an obvious follow-up question, but how does doing this play into that? Well, I think this is something that no one wants to do uh, from an intellectual standpoint, though uh, I've talked with a number of my colleagues who said, if you don't want to do it, I would jump at the chance. Well, I, I, I think it's something that I have to do, and I think it is something that all of our competitors here in Atlanta would have jumped, and knowing how they operate... Uh, I've worked in this market for 30-plus years. I think they would have uh, done a lot of self-promotion and a lot of chest-beating and a lot of, hey, look at me, look at me. To the credit of this television station, we did not do any of that with me, and we were very careful about how we were going to project my image tied to this event. I don't think with our competitors knowing their track record in this city and in this state, that they would have been as admirable or as honorable. You know, it, it's something that I, I think any time I've covered an execution, I've never, obviously I've never witnessed one, but I have been on the grounds, and I have covered the stories surrounding that, and you see the names, and, you know, invariably on that list there's someone I know. And I remember covering Troy Davis's execution uh, several years ago now, and seeing the reporters come out afterward and give their account and wondering if I if I was asked. I think I would do it because of the responsibility that, that you talked about, but would I want to? Would I be one of those people that would jump at the chance just from a journalistic standpoint? Would it make me, you know, journalism, I think being a good journalist is derived from knowledge and and developing a worldly understanding of things that, again, most people don't get the access to have. So would that make me a better journalist to witness something like that? And I still don't know. And 
talking with you and and talking with you afterwards has has emboldened my uh, ambivalence about it. And it seemed like though there was no question what you needed to do from a journalist sense. There's no there was no question that oh maybe journalists period should not be in there. You feel like it is in some way a duty of our job. I don't want to sound too esoteric about this, but again, I, I've been doing this a very, very long time, and I grew up as a, a lower middle class kid who didn't do anything. I lived in Denver. We were too poor to ski. We didn't do anything. Uh, very few life experiences by the time that I hit uh, out on my own at the age of 22. And I look back at my life, and the opportunities that have been given to me as a result of this occupation are mind-boggling. I have done things that in my wildest dreams never could have imagined as a kid. And this journalism career has given me these opportunities. Do I call this an opportunity? I call it an opportunity in this sense, that it is in the public interest, it is by Georgia law, and it is defined by the occupation of journalism and the paycheck that I draw here at 11 Alive. I've, I've gotten to do all of these incredible things, um, and this is something I will never forget. And I, I am horrified by what I saw and what I experienced, yet at the same time I will never forget it, and it is a searing life experience that certainly um, will never leave my mind. I mean, I, I've gotten to do so many incredible things in this occupation, whether it was doing uh, a Falcon Saints game on the radio with Mikhail Gorbachev as my analyst, uh, to uh, calling a Super Bowl uh, on the radio with the Falcons and the Broncos, to doing things on CNN with uh, you, you know the ambassador to Israel uh, talking about the Holocaust. I, I mean, just all of these extraordinary things. Uh, to, to having lunch with Joe Paterno at the Nittany Lion Inn in, in at Penn State. So I, I I I'm grateful, and I never want to get to the point where. Um, I'm not appreciative, and I, I don't understand what this occupation has meant to my life. So let's talk about the day itself. And again, I'm, I'm going to leave the amount that you want to share completely up to you. Um, but going through what you went through, take me and the listeners through what you feel like people need to know that you experienced from where you sat and stood that others would not get to experience. I think as I was getting ready to go in, when, when we had uh, driven to Jackson, Georgia, which is in Forsyth, Georgia, which is between Macon and Atlanta, you know, I was kind of trying to prepare myself for what this day uh, would be all about. I wasn't sure, but I was ready for anything. I do know this, that as I have have followed executions all around the country, radio and television broadcast people have been somewhat sanitized in their description of what they have seen. They have sort of left that to newspaper writers, uh, crime and punishment uh, writers uh, for, for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, their, their fine writer has chronicled it uh, in, in great detail. She had witnessed uh, uh, so many executions, like 20 of them, and had done such a, a stellar job. But I couldn't remember any broadcasters who ever did anything that I ever remembered. And my goal was to be honest with what I saw, honest emotionally, and honest with what I saw with my eyes. And you didn't wait very long after it happened. You started to recount uh, on Twitter, which was an avenue that, you know, even several years ago, a lot of broadcasters were not using. But you decided very quickly to talk about 
what you saw. Was it the process? Was it certain things? The, you know, the just the situation as you went in and sat down and, and noticed your surroundings, that those were the things that you wanted to talk about? Can I tell you what really triggered all of this? I was going to be... I was going to be very detailed in what I saw, but I wasn't uh, planning on on really showing how I felt about it emotionally. Um, but as I was driving home, I had done an interview with the BBC uh, in London Drive for about six minutes at the television station when I got back at 3 a.m., and uh, they were uh, giving me all kinds of questions, and the presenter was very, very sharp and was trying to kind of battle me over the issue of capital punishment, and as I told him that, look, I'm a witness. I am not here as uh, a politician, as a, as a lawyer. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that up to you. I'm merely here to relay what I saw. So I drove home. It was about 3.30 a.m., and the first thing I did was take off my shoes, and I left them out Outside and it was somewhat raining. The next thing I did was I took off my suit, my tie, um, my shirt. I took a hot shower and I took those clothes downstairs into the basement without even thinking and threw them into a box. I didn't want them in my house. I, I don't want to look at them. And I was, as I was showering, I was thinking, wow, what was that all about? Why did you do that? I, I think this was such a horrific thing. I'm not sure I'm going to wear that suit again. I'm not sure I want to wear that tie again. I, I just, I, I don't want any of those images part of me. And I, I, that's when I decided, well, you have to, now you have to share it, you know, how you feel emotionally as well. It needs to be part of the story. What were the details that you really felt needed to be shared? I think, I, I think the horror, I think, uh, we had been told by the state, and not only this state, but others, that this is a rather bloodless, painless, uh, clinical, procedural thing where there really isn't a lot of emotion. The condemned is already sedated and essentially a towel and a sheet are over them, and uh, there's uh, a simple choreography of the warden, the doctors, the nurse, and then the curtains are closed. It was none of that. I mean, there was an element of that, obviously, but it was, it was unbelievable. As we walked into the death room on a very, very foggy night with zero visibility, flanked by dozens upon dozens of guards, the biggest men I've ever seen, and know this, that I have spent 30 years in NFL locker rooms, so I've seen some very large human beings. These were the most intimidating, the biggest people I've ever seen in my life with automatic weapons and body armor. It was terrifying amidst all of the razor wire, all of the check-ins, all of the freedom that has been denied, even our ability to go to the restroom was not allowed. We had to ask men who would not make eye contact with us and then say only one at a time. It, it was a horrifying, terrifying place to begin with. When we walked into the death house, there were three pews, and there was Kelly Gissendanner sobbing and her face crimson, sweating profusely, her hands flexing, uh, she could see all of us as we walked in, making eye contact with us. When I walked in, I really wasn't prepared for that and uh, uh, kind of made eye contact, not, not kind of, I made eye contact with her. I felt it back. I then had to avert my eyes to compose myself. And, and I closed my eyes for about 20 seconds to say, okay, understand what this is and be ready for what you are about to see. 
I think one thing that we usually get numb to as journalists, and it's usually not nearly to the level that you experienced, but I think we so often forget that when we point our cameras or, or take out notebooks or whatever, that the people we're pointing the cameras at and, and watching, they can see us and they can be aware of us. And it, it sounds almost like, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so tell me if I'm wrong here, but it, it sounds almost like you didn't really, you went in there expecting to witness something and you didn't really think about that you might be seen by her, that you might be in some very minuscule way uh, part of this final moment in her life. She could see all of us, and uh, I've, I've been on television here a long time. And um, when I walked in, uh, I, I felt that. I had been contacted maybe nine or ten months ago by a few friends of hers, as well as some members of the clergy, that she would be willing to speak with me. And that didn't come to pass because she found herself as basically as a ward of the state. Once the state declares that you are now in line to be executed, there is no communication with any media. Um, they take away all personal effects, and, and so it played out. So um, I caught her eyes, and I have... Uh, at the risk of sounding cliche-ish here, I have been somewhat haunted by that in the, in the last few days. Uh, it, is, it was something that, was, that began with her praying, with her then crying, with her then sobbing, and then breaking into a panicked version of the, the great Southern hymn, Amazing Grace. And it was panicked. It was sheer panic and fear. And then as she made her statement over the, uh, over the warden, she was screaming. And she was sweating, her face crimson, bright red. And, it, you know, it, it was something that I looked around the room and there were two females in there. It was all male. And I think the issue of gender here also plays in this very large. I, I think by our very nature as men, to hear a woman in such distress is not our nature to ignore it. And I, I saw many guards, uh, very large guards, that were emotionally impacted by it as well. That they were not, many of them were not looking at her. Um, and, and you have to understand how close she is to these three small pews. This glass window, it, it's not a portal. It's not, it's not like a, a small kitchen window. It is, it is an enormous window that, that fills up the room, and we're basically right there with her. Um, I, I think I was not prepared for that either. I would imagine that one of the most difficult parts as it's happening and then in the immediate aftermath is just what you were saying about how people are, are trying so hard to be completely emotionless about it. And again, you're there as a journalist. You're there to witness it as a journalist. And, you know, we all see very haunting things in this job, but I, I cannot imagine what that must have been like to try to balance whatever objectivity and impartiality you have and, and 
your role as a journalist with just the emotional magnitude of seeing something like that? I, I just... Uh... I, I think I wasn't prepared for that, and I think I would be dishonest as a reporter, as a man, not to share that. I think it was a major component of the story. I didn't think that it would be. I thought that it would be more clinical to go in there and say, well, this is what happened, and, you know, the way that, that so many other witnesses say, well, you know, and then at 1221 she died. and But it was none of that. From the moment that we walked in, when the clang of the heavy door behind us and a senior guard announces, no one will be leaving this room until the completion of this execution. If you have medical needs, meaning if you faint, if you panic, uh, there is a doctor in the back of the room. He was in a white coat. So you're here. You're stuck. You're going to be watching this death, this execution now, whether you like it or not. There is no escape for you. You are here and it is now. Take me through the aftermath. After it ends, you leave. I remember at the Troy Davis execution, some of the journalists gave interviews about what they saw, and, and not interviews uh, in the one-on-one -on -one sense, but basically it was a press conference just saying, here's what we witnessed. Um, you mentioned doing an interview with the BBC. Mm -hmm. um, CBS Radio. Was I would imagine that was a flurry. What take me through that experience? You know, it, the the BBC contacted me via Twitter, and uh, while I was on the road coming back, a, a, a colleague was driving Jeremy Campbell, who was there um, reporting from the outside, and uh, I, I I tweeted them back that yeah, I would be available to do something. So uh, I, I did something with them in, in in Morning Drive in London, and as they call them, a presenter. Uh, was a big-time talent and a big-time inquisitor. And in the United Kingdom, Kingdom, uh, uh, they are aghast at capital punishment. They have zero tolerance toward it. They don't understand it. They think that we are absolute uh, uh, crazy people for doing it. And his line of questioning toward me sort of began that way, which I enjoyed. And I was more than willing to volley back with, let's get this straight. That's not my role here. If you are seeking a discourse on capital punishment, that would not be me. I am a witness to the death of the condemned, and I am able to give you details of what occurred. However, I cannot give you any issues or any details of opinion or capital punishment ideas. So. You mentioned uh, the ride back. Jackson, uh, for those who don't know, is a good hour from Atlanta. That's a long drive. And you said you were with someone, which I imagine was pretty important at the time to have someone if you wanted to talk to talk to. Take me through that drive. What were you thinking? What was going through your mind? You know, I was, I was just really happy to get out of there. Uh, I, I can't tell you. There, there was like a joy in my heart, and I thought, oh, my God, what is that all about? How, how can you feel so joyous just getting out of here? I, it was a brutal brutal day leading up to it and it's sitting in a prison in a break room near the warden's office with uh with guards with um three media members for over six hours with no food water pencils issued by the state and pads no watches no money nothing for snacks and guards watching us and we must ask for permission to go to the bathroom uh, Time passed in prison. I know it's a cliche of Hollywood, but it passed very slowly. And it made me think, how do these people deal with this? How, how do they do this? How, how do the incarcerated live in this world? 
Uh, but we sat there watching the clock. We spent time talking about government. We talked about politics. We talked a little bit about pop culture. We then talked about Burt Reynolds movies. Uh, you know, we laughed. Um, but it was, it was some gallows humor, you know, as the, as the evening wore on. Uh, the Department of Corrections would occasionally give us an update, but not much. So we sat there from about 6.17, 6.18 p.m. Eastern. And then at 11.39, tersely, a guard says, get your stuff. We immediately grab our stuff, and here it begins. We walk through a long bunker tunnel, windowless, with the clanging of heavy bars and doors and people solemnly in suits as we walk outside. Beyond that, into the darkness, zero visibility from fog, which only added to a sense of of, of just being so ominous. It was like Hollywood typecast. I mean, you would say to yourself, oh, my God, is this real? You know, they take us through all of these checkpoints into the into the walls of the prison and we can see nothing except the outline of large men with large guns and large lights and finally we stop and there is nothing but silence you get back to atlanta you said around 3 30 mm-hmm. and at some point because it had been a few hours and you really had not said much uh certainly on the air because we weren't on the air, but also just on social media. And then early in the morning the next day, you just start delivering just a series of tweets talking about what you saw and, and as I said at the top, really doing so in, in a way that was tender, incredibly genuine, but also incredibly compassionate. Uh, the issue of capital punishment aside, this your tweets were not about that. Your tweets were solemnly reflecting your role as a witness in one of the most powerful descriptions I've heard of anything in a long time. Talk about what you wanted people to take away from that, and what did you want journalists to take away from that? You know, I was sitting in my kitchen after I'd taken a hot shower, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to sleep. I knew that I was I was up and nothing was going to change. And uh, I felt this great pangs of emotion about it, significant more emotion than I felt uh, from the joyous moments when I was out of that darn prison. Um, but sitting in my kitchen uh, with a little bit of light and just sitting in a chair, I tried to come up with a strategy of, of how can I best tell the story and how should I do it? How can I get people to see it? And and what would be the best strategy? And I thought, well, I'm going to start hitting Twitter and I'm going to hit it as hard as I can until I feel like I have told the story without pandering, without, uh, you know, telling things that, that aren't important. Um, and then I would sort of weave that together into the narrative later in the day. But I thought that was the way to go. And uh, as soon as I, I started to do it, um, Jay Watson here at the television station picked it up. Then all kinds of other people are picking up. And it's going crazy on Twitter. Uh, it's, it's just going crazy. And um, that, that, that was sort of the strategy. I think once I, once I tweeted, um, I, I thought I would let it play out as it would after that. 
What did you want to convey, especially on Twitter, where you're talking about 140 characters at a time, always seems to be the enemy of depth and complexity, but you chose that to be your vehicle, and you wanted to seemingly convey depth and complexity. I, I think issues of great emotion, um, sometimes the fewer the words, the better. And what better forum than Twitter for that sort of stark uh, view of, of death and execution and capital punishment and the experience of what I had been a part of. Um, it, it was, I, I, I just really felt that it was important that we have been sold such a bill of goods by proponents of the death penalty, and I'm not here to cast judgment on it uh, because it is the law, but that it is this somehow or other, this, this deterrent, this sort of bloodless, coolless clinical event, and it was nothing like that. I will... I believe that it would have had the drama of I've never attended a hanging or, you know, of another era, of the Victorian era or of President Lincoln's time or any of that. But I can't imagine there would have been any more emotion in those in, those environments than what I saw at this alleged clinical, you know, you just go to sleep. It was none of that. It was none of that. Her face, and and I want to circle back to this one more time, when I walked into the death chamber, her face was bright red, beet red, fire engine red, crimson with perspiration. Within five or six minutes, her face was as gray as a U.S. naval destroyer. She was absolutely gray from sobbing to silence. And it was uh, an unforgettable visual and, you know, in, in, in combination with her silence. Jeff, when we talk about this from the journalistic sense, uh, you talked earlier in the podcast about how you felt about witnessing an execution before you were assigned to do it and, and how it really wasn't something you wanted to do. I've heard you say uh, on TV and in other platforms that it's not something you will ever do again. What should journalists TV anchors and reporters, storytellers of any kind, take away from this kind of an experience that you had? I think it is, it is so important to be able to tell more than just uh, a sort of Jack Webb staccato from Dragnet and Adam-12 of just the facts, ma'am. It's not just the facts. It's not just the deadly cocktail that's injected into the veins. It's not the doctors with the stethoscope who look for any signs of life. It is not about closing the curtain. It is about all of the human emotions that come with this from the condemned, from those involved as guards, from the warden, from those of us as witnesses, from those of us as family. It is anything but bloodless. Death remains administered by the state is a very, very emotional thing. And I, I think it is the responsibility of, of those who will follow to cover these kinds of things. I, I think it is so important to make sure that you tell the story from the human standpoint as well, not just, not just the issue of life and death, but the issue of what makes us human beings. It's a, it's a moral that applies to 
you know, every story really from the, you know, tiniest, uh, most parochial uh, story that you cover to something as large as this or, or war coverage or things of that nature, you know, finding the humanity in the story. But I would imagine in a case like this, you don't have to search very far. It's more a matter of maybe containing those emotions and figuring out how to deliver them in a way that people will be able to digest and not be completely revulsed by at the same time. You're absolutely right. And there are other components to this as well. Let me, let me tell you from a personal standpoint, my wife was aghast that I accepted this assignment. And she told me that, okay, fine, do this, but understand here's the deal that you make with me. You don't bring that up in this house. Not a word, not a mention, nothing, and nothing to our 13-year-old son, nothing. If you can adhere to that, you have my blessing to go do that. So there are those individuals who want to hear nothing about this, and I want to make sure that, and I think this is important. Um, I'm I'm kind of going a different direction here, I suppose, as you've you've triggered a thought with me, but I, I want to talk about it in the context of my job. I don't want to be talking to radio stations anymore. I don't want to be talking to newspapers. I don't want to be talking to civic groups, to law groups, justice groups. I've had, I can't tell you how many requests I've had to come speak that I'm not doing any of that. I was, my responsibility was um, one night to serve as a witness and to chronicle it. I have done that. Mission accomplished. I'm done. If you have questions, Google it but I'm not talking about it. And I'm not talking about it in social situations. I walked through a grocery store today and I was besieged by people from the dairy case to produce, to meats, to the bakery of asking me about it. And to be honest with you, I don't want to talk about it and I don't want to share it. I feel like it's inappropriate, but it makes me seem as though I am being snippish or arrogant or a, a, a TV monster. So I, I'm, there, there's somewhat of a paradox for me. I don't want to share this with people I don't know. I want to share what I've already said in this forum, online, on Twitter, but I don't want to go beyond it. And you're right, it, it is a paradox, because again, you know, that, that duty of journalism to inform and educate, I'm sure, justice groups, law groups, it would absolutely benefit people to hear your story, and yet I can tell from you, and, and I appreciate you, uh, you know, making this podcast one of your platforms, I, I can tell that it's not something that you want to rehash over and over again. It's just, it, it's something you want to be what it was. As, as you know, Matt, this issue is so heavy politicized that, you know, already I have people, you know, conservatives contending, well, maybe you should have been with a victim that night. You know, those proponents of the death penalty, conversely, others on the left have embraced me as, you know, as someone who has spoken words that have not been spoken. And I, I, I am not an ideologue on any of this. And I am, I think we all have an opinion on capital punishment and I would not share my view on it. Uh, and this is not about that. Um, this has nothing to do with politics, with, you know, waving the flag of one side or the other. On the contrary, all I'm doing is chronicling the death of the condemned, a woman, which hadn't been done here in 70 years. And I think, too, I, I and we talked about this before uh, we went on here with the podcast, but 
I think it's the same as, as war correspondence. You're seeing things that are absolutely brutal and that you, you really cannot convey in its entire brutality to people who are not witnessing it. You, in all of your words, and you're one of the most eloquent people I know, you, you just, uh, it, it, there will be no way for me to know what it is like right now to be you. And at the same time, there is a responsibility, I think, to when it comes to any issue, to make sure that people understand the gravity of it, to make sure people understand what they're talking about. And in this case, when you're talking about death, whether it's in war or with capital punishment, I think it absolutely is not taking a side, but it absolutely behooves people to know what that means. It's not, like you said, some theoretical thing. It's very much a real thing. Look, it's, it's already been decided. Justice has been metered out, okay? I'm not here to talk about the victim of Kelly Gissendanner. I'm not here to talk about her children. I'm here to talk about the end of her life, which occurred between 1211 and 1221, and that's it. No more, no less. I, 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 I wanted to also add an element here. One of my best friends here at work had told me that she had a friend who uh, was a witness in another state and was a, a, a very, you know, very no-nonsense person who was so impacted, who was so devastated by what he had seen that he had to have therapy. And, and she had warned me, you need to be aware of that. that. What you're getting ready to go into is significantly more than what you think it is. It is not it is not what it's billed as. It is this incredible place of, of emotion and end of life that is so important and so significant to, uh, to those of us uh, with a heart and a mind. Last thing I want to ask you about this. You know, I, I, a few episodes ago I talked with Katie Stern, who is an employee at Como TV, and she covered the chopper crash that occurred with her station's chopper and two of her coworkers died and she had to cover it that day. And we talked a lot in that podcast about the importance of communication, the, the importance of talking about it afterwards, the importance of having places to go and people to turn to, whether it's family or whether it's psychiatric or anything like that. Having gone through this now... What are your thoughts about just how to get through something like this and you know retain your humanity but also be able to move forward and cope i I, th- I think everybody is different and and you know i I was surrounded by three media members uh, the other night who had witnessed between them twenty five executions which blows me away. I mean, it's bad enough with one, and these are people of, of high intellect and high success, and I am not here to criticize them. I'm merely pointing this out and saying everyone is different, and everybody's ability to process these kinds of issues of gravity are, um, uh, are, are different. Uh, for me, I am, I am, I am, it's still kind of sorting through it, but I'm I'm okay and I'm sleeping and I feel fine about it. But it still is a major component of things that I think about. And I don't know. I, I think it's made me more focused about issues of life and death. And you know, I'm I'm getting older and 
Uh, you know, none of us live forever. And I think sometimes we try to put the issue of death way behind us when the truth is it is always near us. Jeff, I want to thank you so much for taking the time with me. I I was thinking about this and, and, you know, you had mentioned earlier about how there are very few people who you will speak to about this, media or otherwise. And on the flip side of it, I think there are very few people who I would ask to speak about this. I understand it's a, a tremendous privilege just to be able to speak with you here and and. I don't think we're going to get into the rest of your career now because it it just doesn't seem like the mood is right. I hope you will come back and and we can talk more about the tremendous career you've had, uh, just very recently named to the uh, National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences Silver Circle for 25 years in the market here in Atlanta. So hopefully we can do a part two (laughs) where we talk uh, more about all of that, but I just think it is a real important subject to talk about, and I thank you for wanting to talk about it with me. Before we wrap this up, the question that any good reporter asks, is there anything we haven't touched on this that you would like to add? I am a great admirer of your work. I've been your colleague for about six years, and your ability... Uh, is is uh, it's it's soaring and and your career is one to watch your ability to to turn stories of great emotion and and great thought uh, are, are something I always stop to make sure that I see your pieces you know oftentimes in local television and I think it is a it is a legitimate argument about those people who you know cover fires and car crashes and never offer any perspective every line off of your keyboard has perspective and it has depth and meaning and uh it is is uh, very very special and uh i am i am proud to work with you and i'm i am very appreciative that you would ask me to be part of this all right well jeff i appreciate you taking the time this evening and again i am going to at a later date extend an invitation to talk more about the many other things you've done in this business but thank you again for taking the time and being on the podcast thank you matt and the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. You can find us at tellingthestoryblog.com. We hope you rate and review the podcast on iTunes. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.